Welcome to our new podcast series sponsored by Catholic Church Reform International. I'm Renee Reed and will be your host and moderator for this series. So perhaps we should begin by talking about the audience that we hope to build. We're reaching out to Christians who are looking for some alternative ways to live their faith in today's world. We hope to reach out to all Christians, but particularly if you are a former Catholic or have dropped out from the faith, somebody who is appalled with the clerical sex abuse crisis, maybe someone feeling excluded due to being divorced and remarried, or maybe you're a young adult who feels that your life experiences in today's world are simply not being addressed by the institutional church, so you've moved on. Or maybe you're someone attending Mass on Sunday, but you'd like something a little bit more. Perhaps you'd like to find a more personal, more intimate community. So if any of these fit you, then you've come to the right place. But since we're sponsored by Catholic Church Reform International, let's talk a little bit about who this organization is. CCRI is a global network of committed church reform organizations and individuals all seeking a deeply rooted reform of our church. And the way we connect, since we're global, is through interaction and collaboration on the internet. All of us embraced Vatican II back in the early 60s for its vision of a church of love rather than a church of so many laws. We applauded the Council for striking a new attitude toward the world, no longer seen as evil, but good, because Christ made the world his own in a new way and challenged us, his followers, to help make the world a better place. After the council, though, we were scandalized by the efforts of some to turn the clock back on Vatican II, even to set the church against the world that Jesus loved, and to deepen the divide between priests and people, making the priests holier than thou and the people subservient to them. Clerical sex abuse and its cover-up further shocked the Catholic faithful, and exposed a non-accountable system of governance that does not listen to the people. As a result, as we all know, millions of good Catholics have abandoned the church. I often say that the largest religious denomination in the entire world is former Catholics. So imagine our joy then when a new Pope was elected, imbued with the spirit of the council, who could remind us that we are the church, all of us, not just the Pope and the bishops, but all of us. We set to work immediately in cyberspace, inviting thinking Catholics and other believers in God to help our church complete the promises of Vatican II, allowing us, the people, to grow and change as the world itself was growing and changing. On our website and in our Zoom conference calls, we give the people of God a space where they could speak frankly about anything and everything that affects the common good. When Pope Francis said he wanted all of us to help rebuild the church, we found further encouragement to seek a voice, a vote, and citizenship for everyone in our church. And that included encouragement for our theologians to rethink the message of Jesus in language that ordinary people could understand. That included encouragement for our bishops to walk with us and listen to us as servant bishops, not as Lord bishops. And that included encouragement for all of us to exercise our right and our duty 
to help govern our church and speak out for its good. We had an idea that we could create a just, welcoming, inclusive community of loving men and women, sensitive to the needs of a world that is good because God came to take flesh and dwell among us. So for us then, Jesus is far more than an idea. He lives today in hundreds of millions of human hearts. So let's be more specific. What exactly is the mission of CCRI? Number one, to embrace our baptismal rights and responsibilities by speaking out for the good of our church. And by working together, we hope to achieve transformative change in the Catholic Church, and in particular, but also an ecumenical embracing of church of Christian churches everywhere. Why are there so many denominations, some by even the same name, operating in two separate locations, sometimes even right across the street from each other? It's insanity. And our second mission, to work towards the creation of small faith communities based on the gospel values of inclusivity, justice, and love. Millions of these communities exist around the world, some by the name of small Christian communities, some called intentional Eucharistic communities, and some, particularly in South and Central America, are called Comunidades Ecclesiales de Basa. If you might be interested in joining or starting one of these small communities, we'll be talking more about this throughout the series. So I will tell you that getting this organization going wasn't easy. We met with resistance and naysayers all along the way. I turned to someone for whom I have great admiration, someone you may know, Sister Joan Chittister, and asked for help. She was excited about what we hoped to do, offered to become our special advisor, and wrote a letter that went out to leaders of church reform organizations worldwide. In the letter, she said, until we raise a common voice, we will not only not be heard, we will not even be listened to in the light of larger issues and larger groups, all clamoring for attention. She wanted to see our leaders model together another way of being church, without competition, without distrust, without control. So instead, she said, we need to raise a common voice on a single issue, the immediate need for the genuine renewal of our church. The problem is, though, we can't get anyone to take seriously the most serious issues in the church because they have yet to take the reform of the institution itself seriously. And so we go on as, as if transparency, lay participation, finances, the women's issue, authority, sexual abuse, the genderization of the church, the nature of the episcopacy, even the right to the sacraments and a host of others will not eventually destroy the church no matter how much good work we do. A church that refuses to take the gospel as its guide on these topics, rather than canons that are designed to prop up the structures that spawn them, cannot possibly really preach Jesus. So Sister concludes by saying, my hope is that by speaking out together, a strong chorus of calls for reform, we can provide a common, a clear, a strong, and an ongoing voice for the yet incomplete vision of Vatican II. My hope is that in our desire to be heard on particular issues, all of them important, we do not lose the strength of our common voice by reducing it to a whisper. As a result of that letter going out, on September the 4th, 2013, 
we held a teleconference call inviting reformers all to join on. Sixty some odd people from all over the world came on the call. Father Tony Flannery, a good man who has been set aside by the church, led us in prayer. The topic was very straightforward. Could we find a common theme on which we could collaborate that would allow us to put all of our unique causes aside and come together on this one issue? Rather quickly, the answer came. We agreed to ask Pope Francis to recognize the need for the people to have a deliberative voice in the governance of our church. With that, a writing committee was organized with 10 people representing eight different countries. The letter was written and approved and hand-delivered to Pope Francis and sent out to his special council consisting of eight cardinals. What I'd like to do now is share a few of the highlights of this letter to give you a sense of the kinds of changes that reformers felt were needed. The letter is dated September 20th, 2013. We share with the Pope, it is out of a deep concern for the Catholic Church and in the face of many crises that we representing millions of Catholics from around the world have collaborated in writing this letter. We've experienced the catastrophic loss of our church and trust in our church arising from the global revelations of Catholic clergy sexual abuse and even worse, the hierarchical cover-up. Abuses of power at the Vatican Bank as well as damaging disrespect and marginalization experienced by the laity at large have caused many of our sisters and brothers to abandon the Catholic faith altogether or at least participation in the institutional church. So we shared with the Pope that in our understanding, what lies at the root of many of these problems is the destructive effects of clericalism, something that we know Pope Francis himself agrees with and has spoken out about. We said that we'd like to become a community of equals, even according to canon law. All Catholics have the right and responsibility innately deriving from our baptism to speak out for the good of our church. But we feel that we have a right to an effective and deliberative voice in the decision-making of our church. The full participation of the faith community is completely in accord with the gospel, the tradition of the early church, and the vision of Vatican II. So we laid out five points that we felt needed to be addressed by the, the Pope and his council. The first, a church that embodies the radical justice of Jesus in the world. We want to work as sisters and brothers to build the reign of God on earth so that all people may live free from oppression, from war, from unjust economic systems, from violence, hunger, poverty, and the degradation of God's creation. But our commitment to justice is comprised and often viewed as hypocritical because injustice exists within the church itself, particularly when it comes to how women are treated and how the clergy are elevated almost to the point that they can do no wrong, and the laity ignored or sometimes even degraded. Our second issue, a church that welcomes open dialogue among its members. When speaking in Brazil, we reminded the Pope that he advised that dialogue, dialogue, dialogue is a cornerstone of all human progress. We agree. The freedom of expression, though, including faithful dissent when required, freedom of reasoned inquiry, and the primacy of an informed conscience are all vital to the health of our church. 
We believe that prophetic women and men are continually calling us to engage the urgent theological, pastoral, social, and environmental questions of our time and in new and inspiring ways. So in this slide, we recommend reinstating theologians, clergy and religious, who since Vatican II had been censored and or sanctioned for following their conscience and speaking out. Our third issue, a church that recognizes the fundamental equality of its members. Catholic teaching tells us that all persons have been created with equal dignity in the image of God. Therefore, church structures must reflect this reality. Since all governance in the church now rests exclusively with ordained male celibate priests, this excludes the vast majority of all of the baptized Catholics. So therefore, we recommend a canonical study of the feasibility of linking church governance to baptism rather than merely to ordination. And with regard to ordained ministry, we recommend that identifying the call be based on individual and communal discernment of the candidate's gifts, spirituality, pastoral sense, and theological formation, rather than as it is now, based on gender, sexual orientation, or state in life. We reject the sexist exclusion of women from full participation at all levels of the church. Equally, it is unacceptable to deny our gay, lesbian brothers and sisters access to full participation in every aspect of church life and ministry. And it is unjust to ordain married male ministers from other denominations, such as the Episcopal Church, while refusing to accept lifelong Catholic priests who have left the active ministry to marry. They should be allowed to come back as well, particularly in light of the shortage of priests in today's church. Our fourth issue is a church with greater participation of the baptized in the governance of our church. We feel that there should be full participation of the faithful in the selection and tenure of bishops in their own diocese. And further, that we should reinstate the principle of subsidiarity in parish councils, diocesan pastoral councils, and national conferences of bishops. And no doubt, inclusion of qualified laymen and women serving in leadership positions in the Curia. We ask that all of this be considered. And fifth, and our final point, a church that effectively confronts and prevents sexual abuse. The scandal of clerical sexual, sexual abuse can only be overcome when the bishops who facilitate or ignore the abuse are removed from office and brought to justice by church and civil authorities with universal binding protocols established and implemented. The Catholic Church must earnestly examine the complex root of causes that have led to this scandal. Particularly, we ask that the Church, that the Church, the Council, and the Pope re-examine mandated celibacy and replace it with optional celibacy, and allow priests to marry, recognizing that all calls to the priesthood, as beautiful as that is, is not limited to men only who are willing to take a vow of celibacy. That is some of the cause of this sexual abuse scandal. And we close the letter as we began, once again asking to recognize the rights and responsibilities of the baptized to participate in the deliberative 
decision-making of our church. So that you now have a sense of who Catholic Church Reform International is, perhaps I should tell you something about myself as your moderator. Who is Rennie Reed? My life has taken me from the sublime of religious life to the absurdity of politics. In my young adult life, I entered the religious community of the Daughters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul. I was interested in theology, but in those days, in the early 60s, women religious did not pursue theological studies. So after a few years, I left and pursued both my bachelor's and master's in theology, the latter from the Jesuit University of San Francisco. For a number of years, I worked in Catholic parishes, serving as their religious education director. In the early 70s, I was given the chance to produce and host an ecumenically sponsored religious TV show on KGO in San Francisco called Family Matters, with a double nuance on the word matters. You can imagine how diverse and interesting the topic of families was at that time, and especially in that city. Soon, KGO Radio asked to simulcast my show, and I was given the opportunity to host a talk show, opening the lines to all kinds of calls and perspectives. In 1974, I met and ultimately married James Cavanaugh. While he was still a priest, he had written a book in 1967 called A Modern Priest Looks at His Outdated Church. The Vatican asked him to retract the book or demanded that he leave the priesthood. With over a million copies sold in the early days of its publication, Jim had no choice but to leave. Our mutual love of the church and our desire, though, to see it come of age was one of the main issues that deeply bonded our relationship and our love. As we moved on into the 80s, the impact of the Second Vatican Council was sliding backwards. The conservatives were winning the battle gradually reversing all the good that had come from it. I got tired of batting my head against a brick wall as I worked to counter this reversal, but really to no avail. So for the next 20 or so years, I went to work in the secular world to make a living. During this time in 1988, I ran and won an elected position to serve on the county commission in my community. At that time, and totally by happenstance, I was a registered Republican. Knowing my background and my value system from my days in talk radio, I was asked by a reporter, what are you doing in this party? My answer was pretty straightforward. I said, I'm here to raise the social consciousness of the Republican Party. I got more than a few laughs, but I learned a lot through this phase of my life. I learned that the values I gained through my days of serving the poor as a woman religious and the values I adhered to during my political days of serving my constituents were very aligned. It was nearly impossible to separate one from the other. My greatest accomplishment during my days on the commission was to work with the United Way and other deeply committed volunteers to start a homeless project. There was no formal agency that dealt with the homeless in our community and it was greatly needed. It was a real struggle to get this going. We called it Project Restart, intending for this name to apply to the clients we were serving, you know, 
chance to restart their lives. But as it turned out, the name applied even more to our agency. We had to start and restart our projects so many times with our future resting on a single vote on the city council. But each time, somehow, we eked it out. Now, nearly 30 years later, our project merged with Volunteers of America and is going strong, serving men, women, and families in our community. In the late 90s, while working in the field of network marketing, my business partner and I were asked by a publishing company to write a book on this industry. We called it Your First Year in Network Marketing. And we've been very fortunate. It's sold over a million copies and continues to sell in various languages around the world. But that led me to take on a writing career. Two of my books, one called Till Death Do Us Part, suggesting that just because a marriage ends doesn't mean that it necessarily failed. That marriage served a purpose for a time. And another book called Peace Amidst Conflict, It's a fictional love story set amidst the shocking reality of 9-11. This narrative parallels the plight of America as it searches for solutions to what I consider to be a senseless and ill-conceived war taken against Iraq with a couple struggling to work through their own personal conflicts. So the book is actually set against one of the greatest tragedies in U.S. history and attempts to show how understanding the other side is an essential step toward healing rifts, whether it's between two nations or between two lovers. Needless to say, I switched back to being a Democrat during the writing of this book. If you're interested, it can be found at www.reneread.com. That's R-E-N-E-R-E-I-D.com. So that brings us up to 2013 the year that Pope Benedict resigned and Pope Francis was elected. The very first words and demeanor of this man got my attention, as it did many, many others, whether Catholic or non-Catholic, whether Christian or non-Christian, even atheists were taken with him. Remember when he was asked whether atheists could get to heaven? And he answered very humbly, who am I to judge? So I flew to Rome and with the help of a journalist there, began to interview people who would have reason to know more about the projections of this man as Pope. I interviewed papal biologists, Vatican journalists, heads of religious communities, even the butler to Pope Benedict, the one who released documents he had access to with the intention of saving both the church and his beloved Benedict. But as you know, he was imprisoned at the Vatican and so such time as Benedict, realizing his real motivations, pardoned him and released him. And it was only about a week after that that Pope Benedict resigned, the first time that had happened in over 600 years. My question in each interview was this, is this Pope for real? Is something really going to happen to change the direction of the church? And in all cases, everyone that I interviewed The answer was an overwhelming affirmative. So from there, I traveled to Spain and I made the centuries old pilgrimage that has been going since the ninth century. I walked about 12 to 15 miles a day, every day for the month of May on the Camino de Santiago de Compostela. 
And along the way, I talked to pilgrims on that journey. Two questions that every pilgrim is asked. Where are you from and why are you doing this? At the time, I had been working on a screenplay about a Catholic priest whom I admired, Father Roy Bourgeois. He's an American activist and the founder of the human rights group School of the Americas Watch. And at that time that I met him, he was also becoming involved in standing up for women who were called to the priesthood. He has served time in prison for standing for his cause and been the recipient of several peace awards. So when asked, I told others I was looking for guidance about my screenplay project. And the answer came back again and again, no, not a screenplay. It's going to take too long and still may not happen. Well, what about a book I asked? I've written a couple. No, not a book. Even that takes too long. You need to do something in the now. Jump in with both feet and get involved while we have this Pope. So by the end of the journey, standing on the steps of St. James Cathedral, with the pilgrimage having come to an end, many of the people that I met along the way gathered around on the steps, eager to learn, what are we going to do? I told them that I thought I was being guided to start a website that would invite people and church reform groups from around the world to come together and offer support to this new Pope. And they cheered in agreement. But I said, wait, not so fast. I need to be absolutely sure this is what the Spirit is guiding me to do. Well, what kind of proof do you need? And I answered, I need to find a website that knocks me off my horse, much like Saul when he was going through his conversion and became Paul. I hope to find a website along the lines of Catholic Church Reform. Oh, come on, they said. Don't be so narrow in your thinking. Surely that one has been taken. So together we opened up my cell phone, looked up the possibilities on register.com. And guess what? CatholicChurchReform.com.net.org were all available and had never been taken before. So we registered the site right there and went to lunch to celebrate the founding of this new website and what would become a global support for this new Pope. I came home and contacted my friend Robert Blair Kaiser, who has written innumerable books on church reform and was himself a journalist at Vatican II back in the early 60s. He reached out to several hundred of his closest associates who had worked on reform issues, and by June 20th, 2013, Catholic Church Reform International was launched. If you want to learn more about what has happened over these past six years, click on www.catholicchurchreform.com, all one word, or www.catholicchurchreforminternational.org. So now you have a sense of what our episodes are going to be about. Throughout this series, my hope is that if you haven't already, you'll find your own way to live your Christian faith in today's world. If you're open to exploring new avenues, we'll be discussing them here. Most of the episodes will be in the format of interviews of various leaders in the Christian world who will be sharing what they're doing and perhaps offering you new insights into how we, how we might live as Christians, ideas that neither you nor I have even considered before, and about how we can be a model of Jesus in this 21st century. Thanks for listening. 
and hope to have you back for our next episode.